Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Harriet Minter, and this is the Badass Women's Hour. Coming up on this week's show, I talk to two amazing women whose work is making all of our lives better and safer. One listener asks what they should do if they're desperate to go back to the office and their housemates are driving them mad. And I declare Davina McCall my icon of the week and ask, why do we get so het up over age-appropriate clothing? Before we kick off, however, a few little notices. As the final feature on this podcast, I love to answer a listener's problem. So if you've got a problem you'd like my help with, then do drop me an email on harriet.minter at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Bonus points if your problem relates to working from home in some way, because then I get to do a very unsubtle plug for my book, just as I'm doing here, which is out on 4th of March. WFH, How to Build a Career You Love, is available after pre-order on Amazon and all other amazing bookselling outlets. So if you're debating whether or not to buy a copy, then now is the moment to do so, not least because it pays for this podcast, and so it'd be a true expression of love for Badass Women's Hour. And talking of expressions of love... Let's talk about Davina McCall. Random fact, I once saw Davina McCall crossing the road. I love telling that because I've lived in London for nearly 20 years and I've only got a handful of celeb spotting stories. So I always like to say how I saw her crossing the road in Kensington and she's much shorter than you would imagine in real life. That's it. That's the whole story. It's not that exciting, is it? Anyway, Davina was trending this week on social media because of an outfit that she wore on The Masked Singer. I actually have not been watching The Masked Singer at all. The whole concept of it is bizarre to me, but everyone seems to love it. If you do, please feel free to DM me and tell me why. Anyway, on the show, Davina was wearing a kind of almost classic 90s spaghetti strap cowl neck dress. Do you remember those? Do you remember how we all wore them in the 90s? Like really thin spaghetti straps, completely useless if you have boobs because you cannot wear a bra with them. Anyway, Davina was wearing that. And she put a picture of herself on her Twitter, being tonight's dress from The Masked Singer is from Retrofet, and she looks very hot in the picture. It's a great pic. And she's got a very, the dress has like a very high slit, like very, very high. And some random woman on Twitter, God, why does Twitter make us all think we have to have an opinion on anything? Anyway, some random woman on Twitter retweets this picture of Davina with, Old, over-sun-kissed woman should cover up. Stunning dress, but not for the wrinkly-crinkly. Demure for the mature. Demure for the mature. Anyway, needless to say, this 
tweet has gone a bit viral and everyone has responded to this woman basically saying, don't be so ridiculous, you silly woman. And Davina, I think, actually responded to it as well, basically telling the woman that, sorry if you don't like what I'm wearing, but it's not really any of your business. And in fact, her aim for aging is to grow old as disgracefully as she possibly can. Really, I mean, I loved the reply from Davina, of course, which is to grow old as disgracefully as she can. But I did wonder, why is it in 2021 that we are still policing what women wear? So I did a big act a few years ago of kind of cleaning up my social media from anyone who said things like, if you're this size, you should only wear clothing that suits your body shape and looks like this. Or if you're this size, you should only wear them, wear clothing if it looks like that, you know. But I did a very big cleanup essentially around anyone who said what one had to wear based on your size and shape. What I didn't do, however, because at that point it didn't feel as necessary, I wasn't quite as close to 40 as I am now, was I didn't kind of clear up people who seem to have strong views on what you can do at certain ages and what you can wear at certain ages. And it's really interesting the number of people who talk about dressing for your age or clothing that suits your age or now that you're no longer in your 20s, what do you need to wear? And I'm not sure I'm here for it. It's taken me long enough to work out what actually suits my body, what I like, what I feel comfortable in. I'm not about to give that up just because I've hit some random milestone in terms of years I've been on the planet. Why? It's a form of ageism that we sort of know about and accept and we don't challenge. And I think actually we don't challenge ageism in the way that we challenge any of the other isms. So we sort of accept that women over a certain age, we've got to get a bit of Botox. I saw a program on TV this week which had Susan Kalman in it and in it she shows an expression of surprise and her forehead has wrinkles. When did you last see a woman over 40 where their forehead actually wrinkled? I mean, mine does. Mine has deep, deep furrows in it but that's because at the point where I was deciding whether or not to get Botox, lockdown happened and it suddenly wasn't an option anymore. We really police women's bodies as they age And I don't think we've got as angry or as open about it as we have done when it comes to, say, size or race or sexuality. And I think we need to, mainly because I'm about to turn 40 and I can't have this. It's taken me too long to work out what to wear. What we definitely need if we're going to do that, though, is A, an open conversation about it. So weirdly, this woman tweeting that completely ridiculous statement about Davina. And if you haven't seen, by the way, the gif of Davina twerking in this dress, on the mask singer. You want to go and look it up immediately because it's it's just life goals, really. But we haven't we haven't really talked about it. So we know I think there were stats a few years ago which showed there are essentially five percent of female presenters on TV are over the age of fifty, whereas for men it's something like forty five percent. We know that and nobody challenges it. Nobody cares. And what's so terrifying about that is it doesn't just affect those in the public eye, it affects us as well. So the effects of age and ageism in the workplace kick in for everyone, regardless of your gender. But for men, you experience ageism in the workplace from the age of 45 onwards, and for women, it's 40. So no wonder we're so desperately trying to cover up our age, right? What we need is to have a full conversation about it in the way that we have done around sexism and racism and actually probably not so much about able bodies and disability, which we should do, definitely. 
But we need to have those conversations so that actually we start to challenge some of our preconceptions. Also, we need to champion some amazing older women. So I'm thinking here of the likes, obviously, of Davina, but also like, I know it's a stereotype, Judy Dench. Judy Dench did an, an article this week saying that she still thinks of herself as sort of 20 and tall and willowy and slim and she gets a terrible shock when she looks in the mirror. You and me both, Judy. Ajoa Andoa, who played Lady Dansbury in Bridgerton, amazing actress. We need more people like that that we can look up to and say, look, they are there and they're doing it their way. They're aging as they want to. If you don't follow the brilliant Trisha Goddard on social media, she is so funny on Instagram. We need to see women over the age of, well, 35, over the age of 40, being brilliant, looking amazing, wearing whatever the hell they want and having a great time. Two women who absolutely we should be holding up as heroes are my guests on this week's show. Jolie Brulee and Emma John both work in their own areas doing completely different things, but both are changing the lives of women. Jolie is an activist and started Pregnant and Screwed, and Emma works for a women's refuge centre. This week, they have both been taking on institutions of power. Jolie took the government to court over unfair payments to working mothers, and Emma was part of a landmark case in the Court of Appeal calling for family courts to change the way they treat victims of domestic abuse. First up, Let's hear from Jolie. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Now, I am joined by an amazing campaign and ex, Jolie Brilly from Pregnant and Screwed, has been campaigning about the way women are treated in the workplace and treated in self-employment for the past few years. And now she is taking the government to court to say that there those over 75,000 women who took maternity leave between 2016 and 2019 lost out on earnings because payments from the Self-Employed Income Support Scheme weren't worked out to include their actual working lives. Uh, she joins me now. Hi, Jolie. Hello, Harriet. Uh, so tell us a little bit about 
what you think has happened here and what you're doing about it. So it's, I mean, it's slightly technical, but the Mm. self-employed income support scheme, which is the self-employed version of the job retention scheme, gives people uh, 80% of their earnings over the last three years. So it takes a sort of average calculation of what you've earned over three years and gives you 80% of that. There are, of course, lots of women who have taken maybe nine months a year out during those last three years because they've had a baby. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the income that they get from this scheme is vastly reduced. So we're hearing from women who whose partner does exactly the same job as them and they're getting a payment that's about a third of what their partner is getting because Mm. they're the ones that took time out to care for their child. So this, of course, only affects women. Mm. Um, It's only women, self-employed women who can take maternity leave because of the way the maternity leave system works. And so it's indirect sex discrimination and we had our court case on Thursday And so just so I'm clear, why does it only affect women? Because surely there are self-employed men out there who have taken some paternity leave, no? So if you're a self-employed dad, you have no access to paid paternity leave whatsoever, which is another problem and something that we've also been campaigning on. So we want to see self-employed dads be able to share parental leave with their partner, but currently they can't. They have no entitlement to any paternity leave whatsoever. So in a couple, it nearly always tends to be the mother that takes the time out to care for her child. And tell us what happened on Thursday. Um, um, It was one of the most stressful experiences of my life, but... um, it, I mean, it was just a really fascinating case because the government admit that they that they say they didn't just ignore women, they didn't forget about women, that they could see that this was a problem, but they decided it was too complicated to to fix what? the problem, which is sort of even worse, isn't it? Oh my god! Saying, oh yeah, we sort of forgot about you. Do you know um, what? Yeah, it is worse. I don't know if somebody just puts their hands up and said, "Do you know what? We overlooked this, and that was a mistake. Let's get it right." Yeah, exactly. that's very different from yeah, we saw it, but we just didn't think it was important enough to worry about. Sorry. But this is what we've seen all the way through the pandemic, because obviously the sort of higher echelons of Parliament, you've just got loads of wealthy men mainly white men and so when they've been doing schemes and and making very rapid policies they then had to often go back and do some repair work because they've completely forgotten about women when they've been creating those schemes and we have had some successes with that with much of the guidance we've done lots of lobbying on it but we've managed to make lots of change happen but with this scheme they just really put their foot in the sand and said no we're not changing it that's that's just the way it is and they compared maternity leave to being sick or going on holiday they they actually said in their legal document that maternity leave they class maternity leave is the same as taking a sabbatical and that was infuriating (laughs) to us (laughs) because it just shows that they do not value maternity leave. They do, I mean, maternity leave is work. It is physically and mentally demanding work. It's the hardest job I've ever done. Mm. And most women will say it's the hardest job they've ever done. And so to then devalue it in that way and to say, oh, it's just not important. It's like you having a holiday. 
sends out a really dangerous message about women's role in society, about maternity leave, what maternity leave, the importance of maternity leave and how it really, really needs to be protected for the sake of families and to society. And also, actually, that, you know, for anyone listening to this, if you're self-employed and you're taking maternity leave, you ain't getting that much money. It's not like, because I can imagine some people are going, well, hang on, self-employed, you've probably claimed for maternity pay on the, you've claimed statutory maternity pay, so you've already had one payout from the government, you can't ask mm-hmm. for another one. How much, tell us how much statutory maternity pay is, Jolie. It's about £140 a week. It goes yeah. up every year, so it's about £140 a week. It would have been less than that for those that took maternity leave in 2016. But you are also taxed on that. <laughs> and... I mean, you can't live on that. Who can live on £140 a week? It's well below minimum wage. We have the third lowest maternity pay in Europe. You know, our maternity pay is appalling. So, you know, for us, for women already, where many of us, me included, are furious that we're financially penalised because we're doing that work. So to be financially penalised again Mm. (laughs) the second time round is just completely, completely unfair. So what happens in your case now? So the judge, who was a woman, mm-hmm. which um, he, we hope is a good thing, <laughs> she seemed to understand. I mean, judges are self-employed and she's a mother of four children. So we really hope she understood what we were trying to say. Uh, she needed some time to sit with the evidence. So she reserved judgment and said that she will... Um, bring her verdict a bit later and we don't know how long that will be it could be a couple of weeks it could be months it could it could even be you know up to a year so we've just got to sit tight and wait but the case was expedited because they realize it's very important that women are suffering right now and as a result of this scheme so we're really hopeful that we will get get a verdict hopefully very soon and if she rules in your favor what does that mean for those women do they get a payment what happens next it means that the government have to rectify the scheme so it doesn't discriminate against women so that's all the judge will say she won't say how they have to do that and what that means she'll just say go away and and make sure that scheme isn't discriminatory and so the only way we can see that that would work is if they gave a rebate to the women affected and obviously the scheme is running now and um, we'll be running until April and we hope even longer. So moving forwards, we hope that they, you know, change the scheme and make it work for everybody. What do you think needs to happen in government in the future to stop things like this happening again? I think I think you need more women <laughs> at senior levels yeah. in the government. They're just not there. And we know really that all of the decisions are being made by about six men. The war cabinet is men. It's only men. And so really you need every type of life experience around a table to make decisions for for population. You you need race, disability, gender. You need every type of person around that table and they just Mm. don't have that. And so you're seeing the holes in policymaking as a result of that, I think. And I think also in policymaking and also then in what happens when people challenge that policymaking, you know, for Rishi Sunak to say, you know, that self-employed people just have ups and downs, whether that's maternity, ill health or other reasons. 
shows that really actually not only does he not understand women, doesn't understand self-employment either. No. How do we get more women into politics, do you think? Because we're seeing, and I include you in this, some amazing activists and campaigners who are women at the moment. But mm-hmm. how do we move from challenging politics to actually saying, okay, we're going to be part of it? Um, well, there's loads of research that shows that you say to a man once, or you make a great MP, and they go, oh, okay, I'll go and do that then. <laughs> and you have to say to women, I think it's something crazy, like 60 times, you have to yeah. say to the same woman, come on, you can do this. And then and she'll finally go, oh, okay, maybe I can. Um, so I think <clears throat> lots of, you know, we we don't believe in ourselves as much, um, but there's also massive structural issues there. So uh, particularly for mothers, you yeah. you know, it's really intense. It's long hours mm. and um, childcare, therefore, is a massive issue. You actually, you know, as a mother, you want to see your kids a bit yeah. and you don't feel that that's possible um, when you're an MP. Um, and it's it's not the friendliest of places, is it? It's very yeah. macho and very masculine. And we know that female MPs get an enormous amount of abuse. I, I was on a tweet recently with Nadine Dorries, the... Mm-hmm. Conservative Minister who actually has helped to change some of the guidance in a really positive way and for about four days afterwards I was part of the abuse that she receives on Twitter because I'd just been included in the tweet and it was nasty and malicious and horrible and you know the threats and the 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 names that she was called you know ugly and um, oh, you, st- you, you can't mm. still be here and oh, just horrendous yeah. and you can't imagine what that would be like to have that constantly. Um, but at the same time, I think there are some, some amazing women now in Parliament and they really, really support each other. I think some of the female MPs are doing such great work to try and bring other women up with them. And so there's a really supportive network in there and um, 50-50 Parliament are doing great work. You know, there's lots of networks mm. to get involved in if you think that it's something that could be for you and we need more women um, to be standing up, definitely. Jolie, well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us and thank you for everything you're doing um, for self-employed women because it is, I mean, it is insane to think that because you have dared to have a baby and dared to take time off to ensure that baby's survival, that you are then pushed aside when it comes to support from the government. And it's just not okay in today's, today's climate. I mean, I was going to say in today's climate, but it feels like we've slightly forgotten about women in the last few weeks. But anyway. That was Jolie Brilly from Pregnant and Screwed. Did you know that victims of domestic abuse can be forced to see their abuser under law? And if they don't agree, they can face fines and even prison time. Emma John is one of a group of women calling for the law to change. Here she tells us what's happening. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. In an article this week, journalist Emma John says more women than ever are choosing to be single, and yet they are still called spinsters. Why? What's with the name calling people? How can we rebrand the spinster image? She joins me to talk about it now. Hi, Emma. Hi, Harriet. Uh, Tell me, why did you decide to write the article? Well, I I decided because it was a subject that I wanted to explore in a book. And so I've been working on that book for the last year. And the the reason why I wanted to explore it was simply because 
I didn't feel like I'd ever read anything that yeah. really captured my experience. And and I wondered why that was. There, there, there was a really good book uh, by Kate Bolick in the States called um, Spinster. That was mm-hmm. the title of it. Uh, but like with so many books that are about single women, um, it ended up with her, her choosing um, a, a life with a partner. Uh, and, um, and so many of the sort of single dating books that I've read and that I've really enjoyed, you know, be it, um, uh, you know, people like Dolly Alderton, um, mm. or, or, uh, um, people like that, that they, they still very often end with people falling in love. <laughs> and so that I just haven't really read about, I haven't read anything that's really resonated with me as somebody who hasn't uh who hasn't found that who's turned 40 and um and is and is not not able to kind of have the luxury I suppose of of thinking that singleness is just a very temporary state anymore. So this is really interesting because is do you think that we are now choosing to be single or do you actually just think that there are more brilliant women out there than there are brilliant men. And that means that some of us are not going to find somebody brilliant enough to be with us. Well, that's interesting. I did look into the demographics and I Mm. I chatted to a wonderful statistician at the ONS, uh, which is the place you go when you want to be (laughs) sure of your facts. Um, There isn't actually really any indication as that, 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 there is a kind of um, imbalance in in the dating market at the moment. Um, yeah. Obviously, in history, we have seen periods where there have been, you know, long periods of where there were what they called sort of leftover women or superfluous women. Um, there was there was a period between the wars, famously, um, you know, and that there were very good demographic reasons for that. Um, during the middle of the nineteenth century, there was a there was a huge imbalance bet- and, and a sudden superfluity as they called it of um of of women because so many men from britain went off to the colonies and and the, and each of these times there's been kind of a great social worry about oh, what do we do with these women you know are they useful are they uh, <laughs> are they well employed um <laughs> but around this 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 time it's it's much more to do with the fact um, that people are getting married much, much later. And of course, people are not marrying in the same way. It's just people, there isn't the same societal pressure to marry. Uh, and dating itself is incredibly fluid now. Um, and, um, you know, we treat it almost like we do online shopping. You know, yeah. y- you can you can have anything you want, anytime you want. And um, and relationships have definitely changed as, as a result. And people's attitudes towards them, perhaps their attitudes towards commitment, perhaps what they expect from them. Um, and, and I think a lot of single women uh, are ha- ha- also coming to the discovery or the, the, the realisation that, um, uh, you know, that they, they don't have to have one um, one special, you know, person for their lifetime, which is kind of the romance that the romantic narrative we've always been sold about the one um, that you're looking for, the one. Even yeah. Carrie Bradshaw, you know, she, she, you know, there was a there was a whole Sex in the City seven series or whatever of, of 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 saying, you know, you don't have to look for the one, but she still ended up with Mr. Big. 
And do you think then we need to rebrand the image of single women? Because single men have always had the bachelor, you know, the kind of... And there's something about the bachelor... I mean, they literally made a TV show out of it, didn't they? About the bachelor, which is, <laughs> if you are a bachelor, you're sort of a, a catch. You know, people should be trying to pin you down. And yet, if you're a woman and you're a spinster, well, nobody's making a TV show about that. Yeah, and, and that is that is entirely a kind of, it's like a legacy. It's like this terrible hangover um, from, from a very economic reality that we faced where single men, you know, until uh, until probably the beginning of the 20th century, single men had, had huge, huge advantages over single women in that they, you know, they often had uh, jobs or, or inherited money or, or, or I, either way, they, 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 they could do what they liked uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and enjoy themselves. Um, whereas single women and, you know, specifically, you know, we're talking about single women who were called spinsters and old maids. These, these women, they had no avenue often um, for any kind of, um, you know, economic advancement. They, it, was, it was a very hard life um, if you didn't marry because marriage was where your financial security came from. And, and so as a result, the kind of cultural um, associations that we have with the word spinster or old maid are, are of women, women who are a bit desperate, a bit ludicrous, um, and who really have no resources of their own. How do we... Do you think there is a movement to change that? So I've seen, you know, in the last year or so, I've seen podcasts dedicated to single women, newsletters dedicated to single women. Is it about to shift? I think so. There's, you know, I've heard the term single positivity movement, um, yeah. which, um, you know, is, is I, I had not heard until the last couple, last few years, I would say. There's been a lot of um, talk around Hollywood celebrities who who have very proudly, you know, talked about their single status, um, which is very interesting in a world where like there's a huge, obviously, cachet and, uh, and celebrities dating each other. Yeah. Um, we've had Emma Watson talking about being self-partnered in an interview she did with with Vogue um although you know I've, I've got to say as somebody who's 10 years older than her um uh, and, and 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 you know that uh, knowing that you know she has a, she obviously has a lot of choice and she does you know date some lovely men and apparently she has a very very nice partner now you know there's a there's a bit of me that thinks well give give it another 10 years love, and then then see how you feel about being self-partnered but you know definitely there is there is a big um a shift in perceptions and 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 I'm really grateful to the kind of you know to the many women who who already kind of are, are making strides for that and and yeah. standing up for, for for a different kind of model I suppose do you worry that if you uh with this book as you'll become a kind of face for singledom and that that will become a kind of element of your career which if you give it up might be going against the grain and I say this as somebody who was single for sort of 10 years and you know made it almost a part of my personality <laughs> something I talked about <laughs> something I wrote about and then when I got together with someone I now feel a little bit like I've lost a kind of income stream <laughs> um, do you find that is it a part has it now become a part of who you are and what happens if you meet someone that's a really interesting point. I would say from a writing point of view, absolutely not. Um, yeah. For me, I'm very lucky. I actually, I, I began 
my life as a sports writer and I still I still write a lot yeah. about sport and about cricket and then th- that was what my first book was about my second book I, <laughs> I went off and I became a, a bluegrass fiddler and um, you know so I've had a lot of lovely adventures and done some you know very unusual and exciting things which have come about partly because of being single yeah. um, you know because of the opportunities to to travel and, and be independent and um, you know go where I want when I want uh, but I, I can't see myself, um, I, you know, I think there are plenty of, I, I think there are plenty of people who kind of realize that, you know, and, and part of what I want to argue in my book as well is that all, all of us are single at some stage. That, I mean, that, that really is the point to me is that singleness is now, is, is such a universal experience, um, for everybody, because whether, whether you start out single and get married or, or get, you know, find a partner, whether you find a partner and then change that partner, lose that partner, um, move on from that partner, all of us in our life spend, I think quite a quite a fair amount of our lives, uh, much more than used to be in 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 the past, um, single. And so I think it's something that is just kind of, you know, will will be relevant to people at a particular stage of their life. And it, and if I, you know, I've, I actually remember saying to my sister when I was beginning to work on this book, I said. Um, you know, I've, I have I have wanted a partner. I, I have hoped to find somebody. I have done the internet dating. It, it, it hasn't it hasn't happened. I said, I bet you anything. If I start writing a book about being a spinster, <laughs> I'll meet somebody tomorrow. Uh, did it uh, work? Lucky for me that lucky for me that hasn't happened. So I did manage to kind of continue writing in this personal vein all the way through. But um, I would not be upset at all if the result of publishing a book about single was that some um, you know some wonderful chap uh read it or or heard about it and decided that um I was the person for them (laughs) um when you are when you're with your family do you feel pressure as a woman from them to have found somebody to have had babies because I know lots of my single friends still and you know I definitely did still feel like actually they're completely fine with their friends and living their life but when they go home for say Christmas it's that, oh, still single. Oh, if you met anyone, that that's where the pressure really comes from. Yeah, I think I think a lot of that pressure. I think part, some of it is some of it is real um, uh, because our parents, you know, because we're a different generation to our parents. Our parents' expectations are slightly different. But I also think any parents, um, you know, they 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 want to see uh, their children. Um, what I think they want to see their children safe and settled, and I think a lot of that that safety is the idea of leaving their children in in you know with support in somebody else's hands. Yeah. I, I certainly feel like that's where I felt you know that I have had times when I've fought, had really bad you know arguments with my mum about this um but I know that it's coming from a place of 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 great love and that ultimately you know that it isn't so much pressure as as just her deep desire um I think to you know to hope that she sort of handed me off and and has someone that you know can can feel like there's somebody there who's got my back when she's not around to have my back um so I do I do think that there is that but I also think there is so much internalization of the societal stigma that goes on that I think a lot of us single people 
we will actually magnify um, and amplify some of the things that we hear and um, some of the messages that we're receiving from society because we've actually, we've grown up with it. We believe that that we're all supposed to find the person to love, um, that, that that's really the way of being happy, the way of being fulfilled and that and that there's a massive loss and lack and absence in our life if that doesn't happen and that therefore our lives are not quite as um as whole or as uh you know as well lived as other people's and i think that is something that it is very hard but probably almost impossible not to internalize in some way um given that you know we're talking about thousands and thousands of years of 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 human history and narrative around that how then do we become comfortable with the concept of singledom if we're because I I absolutely believe that it is possible to be single and happy and also want a relationship, that those two things can coexist. But how do we get to that place? Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of it is about, uh, a, a lot of it is about um, being uh, comfortable in, in who you are um, and in, in where you're at. Um, I, I, talking to a lot of my friends as I've been researching this book, we've noticed that, you know, obviously you become um, you become slightly, you often become slightly more comfortable in yourself as you get older. Unfortunately, um, you know, especially, you know, as regards a, a, a woman's desire for children, this is then sort of going almost exactly against what you would consider as the kind of increasing perhaps desperation to find somebody as you get older and, and you, you know that you've, you've on a timeline, you might be running out of time to make family. Um, and yet I feel like my single friends who are in their late 30s, 30s say um, are, are the ones who uh, may, while they may be genuinely grieving um, the lack of a family and the feeling that they might never have one uh, are also most appreciative of the life that they have lived of the experiences that they have had um, and of the relationships that they do have and I think it's about understanding that a single life should not be lived in comparison to a married one because that's the only that's the only way of stopping yourself from going mad really you, we, we're so used to just co-opting the language of coupledom um to, to friendship but they're totally different things um, and friendships can be um complex and loving and deep and profound um and central uh, to a single person's life in a way that um they they maybe aren't um for for couples who who you know have that best friend have that kind of that one rock that one support I I think I've been thinking of myself recently um, I've been thinking of banyan trees which are the trees um, where instead of having the one solid trunk and then the lateral branches going out from it they're the really messy trees um, where where they 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 have lots and lots of roots that that hang down from their branches very visibly and then and then these roots um just constantly you know they root where they fall and in fact tree, these trees are often called walking trees because they yeah. can put down so many roots that um you know they they don't need one central trunk they they have uh they have the ability to move and grow and expand in an extraordinary way and and i think that 
that is the kind of thing that you have to celebrate about your own life when you're single, rather than um, trying to tell yourself, oh, well, I'm single, so therefore I, I must try and, I don't know, travel more or, or you know, be more, yeah. I, I don't know, extravagant with my money or whatever it is, these kind of slightly sex in the city-ish uh, mm-hmm. spins that we've we've put on single life in the past. I think that is wonderful advice. Emma, thank you so much for talking to me. I can't wait to read the book. Emma John, the journalist, talking about the spinster life and why actually we've got it wrong about it, really. Two amazing and brave women there and proof that there's not an institution too big to be challenged on its treatment of women. Finally, this week, it's time to turn my attention to your problems. And this week comes from a listener whose flatmates are driving her up the wall. She says, I've been working from home now for nearly a year and at first I enjoyed it, but recently I've had enough. Both my flatmates are also working from home and while we used to be friends, they are driving me crazy. We just don't have the space, so I hear them when they're on Zoom calls and vice versa. The kitchen always looks like a bomber sitter and our bills are skyrocketing. It's not as though I don't still love them and want to live with them, but it would be nice if just sometimes they weren't there. I know this isn't possible, but even worse, my boss is now saying perhaps we won't come back to the office at all and working from home will become mandatory. How can I reconcile myself to the fact that it's going to be like this for a while, maybe forever? What should I do? I think it's been really interesting in uh, the last year how we've switched the discussion around working from home from something that we do as a lifestyle choice to something that companies now enforce because they think it's better. And we haven't really talked about how it works for different people. I don't know how old the person who sent this to me is, but I'd imagine if you're living with flatmates, you're probably kind of at the younger end of the spectrum and potentially kind of newer in your business. So you're still learning the ropes. I lived with flatmates until I was 35 and I was the only one of us working from home. And I was very aware when I started working from home that I was going to be in the house, putting the heating on, using the electricity, making lunch in the kitchen. And so I had to compensate for those things. And one of the ways that I did that, and it is really important for all of us in our lives generally, but particularly when we're working from home right now, is through setting some clear boundaries. So I said to my housemates, you know, I'm really happy to pay an extra amount on top of the electricity bill, but we need to work out exactly what percentage that is. After that, I can't be held accountable for it, unless of course there's some serious reason. We agreed that actually if they were going to be at home, maybe they had a day off or if they were ill and I had to do a call that I had priority use of the sitting room because I was kind of choosing to work from there because I was paying a little bit extra. We agreed that I basically couldn't leave stuff lying around in the kitchen. So just because I was there the whole time didn't mean that they wanted to come back and feel like when they came home, I hadn't cleaned up after myself, which is all the kind of standard things that we have with flatmates. But this year it has been quadruple because we're all in the same space all the time. So you need to set really clear boundaries, both with flatmates, but also with work. So what I mean by this is things like agreeing how you divvy up the space. So do you want to be making lunch together or actually do you want to be making lunch at different times? And if you're making lunch at different times and you live, say, in a flat where your kitchen and your sitting room are in the same space, you need to let people know what time that is going to be so that they are not holding calls at the same time. You're not chopping away in the background as somebody's trying to explain a very difficult point about their work to their boss. 
And I think actually it's easier to do that if you have set times. So if you say, actually on Mondays between 12 and 2, the kitchen is a no-go zone because one of us is eating in there. Or if you agree that actually you're going to eat together as a house on, on lunch times on Fridays, and that takes place here. And then what you have to do is be really honest and upfront with your workplace about those boundaries. So you have to say, actually, I can't do a video on call um, at 1pm because I will be working from my bedroom at that point. Or actually, it's not going to be possible for me to do a four-hour conference because I need to move around the house and I'm not going to be able to stay in the same place and the Wi-Fi moves, whatever it is. Actually explaining to your boss the limitations of what is going on for you at home is really important because when we come out of this pandemic, they are going to be able to see how their working from home policies affect you. Because I think a lot of bosses have forgotten about this. I think a lot of them are now saying, actually, we really like working from home. It's great. We've turned the spare room into a study and we're all sorted. And they've forgotten that a lot of us, including me right at this moment, are working from our beds. And that's not a sustainable way to work. So you need to be honest and open with your flatmates and you need to be honest and open with your boss. And then on the final thing with being honest and open with your flatmates, look, honesty, openness is great. Sometimes when we're stuck in a place with people, we can feel more strongly about things than we might do if we had the opportunity to move around. So them leaving their shoes in the hallway when they come in might not generally bother you, except this year it's got you to screaming point. Understand that there are going to be levels of things that are just the reality of living with other people and that are unacceptable in a shared space. So before you have that conversation with your flatmates, note down all of the things that right now are driving you up the wall and that you want to change. And then put them in an order of priority and take the top three, no more than that. You're not going to get people to change more than three behaviors. And suggest to them that you sit down and you have a time to work it out between the three of you, say, or three of you, four of you, how many there are of you. I was thinking of my last flat, the three of us. Say, actually, I know that we're all working together and it's a shared space and it's a little bit difficult at the moment. Shall we have a bit of a powwow about how we are going to deal with this? Shall we sit down and have a talk? Give them the chance to potentially critique some of your things too. If you're annoyed with them, they might be finding you a bit difficult too. And just bring up the things that you really, really would make life better for you and use it in that framing. Say, if possible, it would make things so much less stressful for me in this very, very stressful time if we could agree that. And then say, is there anything you need from me in order to get through this more easily? So it's a two-way conversation because it is not just them, it's also you. And if you're living together, the most important thing you can do is preserve that relationship. Because however annoying they are to you right now, they're going to be way more annoying if they're doing the annoying thing and you don't like them. But if you can preserve that relationship, if you can remember what you like about them, if you can speak to them calmly, if you can ask for the big things, not the little things, and if you can allow them to ask you for stuff as well, you're going to find that it is much easier to get along. That's all for this week, but my request for you all, if you wanted to show some love to the show and rate, review or subscribe, that would be very, very kind. You can just share the podcast with a friend, send it to somebody, maybe send it to your annoying flatmate and say, hey, here's a suggestion. Why don't we talk about what's going on with us? 
whatever it is, any way you can show your support, I'm always incredibly grateful. And if you have a problem you'd like me to solve, please do drop me an email, harriet.minter at gmail.com or send me a DM. I'm on all the socials at Harriet Minter and I will see you or hear you again next week. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.